This morning we're going to be talking about what everyone is looking for. I, what, what a thing to say. I'm going to stand before you and I can tell you what you're looking for. I can tell you what your friends are looking for. What is everyone looking for in life? Well, in one way or another, we're all looking for the good life. Um, we want a good marriage if we're married. We want good friends. Uh, we want good kids if we have kids. Uh, we want a good job if we're of working age. If we're not, we want a good retirement. Uh, we want good health. We want good benefits. Uh, we want a good house. We want the good life. It's what you want. It's what I want. It's what our friends want. Christians, non-Christians. There's this pursuit of good. And I would like to suggest to you on biblical grounds... It's good to want that which is good. This is, this is built in us. In fact, it gives evidence of the fact that we're made in God's image. Now, not everybody's willing to acknowledge that. Not everybody's willing to acknowledge uh, that, uh, or we call it different things, or we have skewed perspectives on what the good life might look like. But the fact that every single one of us, in one way or another, though we might define it differently, is looking for the good life, gives evidence that we're all alike. Biblical grounds would say, therefore, we have a common creator, that God made us in His image. And, oh, by the way, when God created the world, this is before rebellion, before sin, before the consequences of sin, God made the world no death, no suffering, perfect relationships, perfect peace, perfect everything. What did He say? He looked at it all and He said, it is very good. It is good. Oh, it is very good. So it's perfectly good. <laughs> it makes perfect sense that we would want the good life. I mean, again, it gives evidence that there's something in us that's like God. We're made in God's image. We want that which is good. The problem is that ever since our first ancestors rebelled against God, we, like they, have been living, as some writers have said, east of Eden. We, we've been living outside of the good place. We've been outside, living outside of the very good place. And yet there's still something in us that wants the good. We want the good. There's something built in us that, that, that we, we want to be back, back in that good place where only good happens. Thankfully, by God's grace, because God is gracious... He promised restoration. He, he promised restoration as early as Genesis chapter 3. He promised it. That, that one day there, 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 there would be one who would act on behalf of humanity that would restore things, that would bring back. How about this? That would fulfill that longing to be in the good place, to live the good life. And again, this doesn't mean my friends understand it from a Christian perspective. But you and I should at least understand it if we're Christians. There's something built in us to want to go back, to have it be right. As early as Genesis 3, we see this talked about, promised by God. And then as the, the biblical revelation unfolds and we work our way through the Old Testament, we see this talked about more and more. In fact, then eventually it's talked about as a kingdom. Sometimes we have bad thoughts about kingdoms because every king we've ever known has been less than perfect. But imagine a perfect king 
who is utterly fair, righteous in other words. He's just. And, and the rules of His kingdom are, are utterly good and right. And relationships are therefore perfect and good in their ultimate sense. Health is perfect. No suffering, no conflict, no worries, no difficulties. A kingdom where the king protects you and the king provides for all of your needs. It makes sense that the Bible would speak of this as a kingdom eventually. We, we read this morning, Daniel chapter 7, is a promise of this return to the good place, if you will. A return to ultimate goodness for creation for those who are in Christ. It's called a kingdom. We hear about this in other famous passages of Scripture. How about Isaiah 9, 6? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. No, this isn't Christmas time. We hear it at Christmas time, though, because Jesus' birth narrative is related. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Notice all the good things there, the, 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 the ultimate good things. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and it says, forevermore. So it's an everlasting kingdom. It's what we're longing for, even if we don't know that's what we're longing for. Restoration. Return to goodness. That's what it's about. Then we get to the New Testament in Luke chapter 1, verse 32. We see that the dots connected. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. That sounds like Daniel 7. That sounds like Isaiah 9, 6. Well, it's meant to. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Christians say, yes. And believing Jews of, of that day would say, yes. It's what we've been waiting for. It's what we've been anticipating. It's what we've been hoping for. It's what we've been longing for. Restoration. It's great. It's great. Today we're going to talk more about that kingdom. The kingdom that, that we're anticipating. The king who came to this world and this earth. We're going to be in Luke chapter 10. So if you have a Bible, you can join me. I'm already open to Luke chapter 10. And what we're going to do is learn more about this kingdom that we long for, whether we know it or not. Learn more about this king uh, that we long for, whether we know it or not, know it or not, because he will be the good one who brings about the good, the ultimate good, the very good that fixes all the broken, restores all the conflicted, and I'm going to call this when the kingdom came near. When the kingdom came near. And that's because on two occasions in the first 24 verses, it talks about how the kingdom came near. So this morning, if you're taking notes, we're going to look at some, some of the things that happened when the king, kingdom came near. Some of those things that happened when the kingdom came near. And I just broke a rule of public speaking. And you're trying to be relevant and you're keeping everybody engaged. One of the rules for a preacher is you shouldn't give an outline in the past tense. And I did, just did. 
We're going to look at some of the things. You're not supposed to say things either, but I'm, I, I, I'm a rebel at heart and I have to do it sometimes. Some of the things that happened. It's something you want to avoid in preaching because people don't care about history. They want you to talk to them about, here are things that are happening in your life. But my friends, you have to realize that apart from what happened in real history in the past, what's happening in your life doesn't have the significance that it would need to have. Oh, and let's go further. What will happen doesn't have the historic grounding in sureness and things that really happened. And so it becomes very relevant for us to talk in the past tense. Okay? Things like Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Those past tense realities are really, really important. So, so pardon my bad preaching today. Um, but in the name of hopefully being a faithful preacher, I'm going to be a bad preacher. I'm not going to talk about your life in the here and now. I'm going to talk about Christ and His work. And it will relate to our life in the here and now and in the future. And I can't wait. Hope you're motivated to learn about what happened when the kingdom came near. Number one. When the kingdom came near, its good news was declared. Its good news was declared. It was proclaimed. Look at verse, 20, uh, verse 1, if you would, of Luke 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others. These are going to be the proclaimers. And sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And everything would indicate, based upon what we've learned in Luke already, is that they're going, and they're going as preachers. Okay? Earlier in chapter 9, when the 12 are sent out, they're sent out to do kingdom-like activity, and they're called to preach the good news of the kingdom. Uh, if we go back even further, John the Baptist, who was supposed to go before Jesus to prepare the people, like the twelve that would go after John, but, but he went and he preached the truth about the kingdom because the king is coming. And now Jesus sends these seventy-some, and he sends them also to preach the truth, the good news about the kingdom as we're going to see, and he sends them out to do that. It's not bad. In fact, there seems to be a growing need for more and more people. It starts with John the Baptist, and then you have the twelve, and now you have the seventy-some. It's good news that they have, which is, which is going to require more people to tell because more people want to hear this good news. It's the good news about what people are longing for, even though if they don't know they're longing for it, even if their, their perspective on it is viewed or is skewed. So we need to do some unskewing. It's no wonder John the Baptist said, repent. And Jesus said as well, the kingdom of God is at hand. But let's keep going in verse 2. It says, and he said to them, the harvest is plentiful. See, there, there, there's a large number. Uh, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So it started with a small group. Now he's sending a bigger group, but then he's going to call them to even pray for a bigger group because it says, therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It's interesting. He's sending the bigger group and he's even asking them to pray because of this, the significance of the size. Apparently the way it would work is so that then there would even be more people who could go tell even more people because this is a big thing. We've got a good news message to proclaim. We're going uh, to have hope. 
We're going to have the hope of an eternal kingdom where there is restoration, where there is only good, no bad, only peace, no conflict. We're going to need emissaries. We're going to need ambassadors, just like John the Baptist was a kind of one of those, the forerunner, then the 12 disciples, and now the 72, and he's calling them to do this. We can pose the question, why are there 72? And I can say that's a complicated question to ask, not to mention answer. It's complicated because if you have really good eyesight and you look at the bottom of your Bible, there might be a note that says some manuscripts say 70. Well, that's making it complicated. Um, The passage doesn't say why there are 70 or 72. It's a larger number. We know that for sure. If there are 70... There's no, I, I don't think there's ultimately any for sure spiritual reason why it's this number. Otherwise, he would tell us. If it's 70, it could be significant because Moses, back in Numbers chapter 11, when he couldn't do all that he needed to do, had the 70 elders. And I wouldn't want to make too big a deal out of this, but in a certain sense, Jesus is, is, is a greater Moses a different kind of Moses. And so maybe there's meant to, I wouldn't want to push this, I wouldn't want to die for this, but maybe there's meant to be a correlation. You know, Jesus said, you have heard it said in the Sermon on the Mount, but I say to you, there's a contrast, you heard Moses say, but I say to you, kind of a greater, different kind of Moses. Maybe that's what's going on here. He has his 12, 12 tribes of Israel. And now he has the 70, like the, the elders who were there helping Moses in Numbers chapter 11. Maybe that's what's, what's going on here. Another possibility is, back in, some suggest that back in Genesis 10, you have the, the 70 nations, the founding of all the nations, and you have the supposed 70 nations, and, and they'll go out into the world. So then you have a, a Gentile outreach. So Jesus goes to the Jewish disciples and now the Jewish disciples are going to go out and preach Christ and they're in a Gentile region and you're going to have them go to all the nations which is a prefigurement or an anticipation of Great Commission which goes to all the nations? Perhaps. Perhaps. Or maybe it's just 72 because. It's the number the Lord chose. And we do know that it is the number that the Lord chose. And they're preaching the gospel like the 12, according to chapter 9, verses 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. It's good news about the king. Perfect reign. Perfect peace. Then verse 3 says, go your way. Urgency. Go. Command mode. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out. If you're a Greek student or even at all interested, he uses the word apostello. Sounds like apostello. Sounds like apostle. These aren't... These aren't apostles, properly speaking, but but they're sent out with authority like apostles are. And so there's authority involved. There's urgency. There's there's authority involved. I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. So there's danger as well. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals. The implication there is, notice he doesn't say don't wear sandals. Don't carry any. In other words, don't pack your bags. This is urgent. This is what you need to go do. Just go do it and go do it right now. It's an urgent matter. And greet no one on the road. Probably not because he's encouraging rudeness or <laughs> something like that. But this, I'm sending you on mission. So you go do this and don't get distracted. This needs to be done. I'm going to go to these other places. I'm 
following uh, a plan. So I need you to go do this. Verse 5 says, Whatever house you enter, verse say, Peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. But if not, it will return to you. And I'll be the first one to admit that that sounds kind of strange. I just read that and reread that and read it in context. Think I'll come back to that. The one thing that helps is to remember we're talking about the king sending official representatives, emissaries, ambassador types. If you go and you come in the name of the king, you offer the king's blessing upon them if they accept, it's great. You're representing me. And if they reject, it's bad. I think that's just the, the, the basic gist of it. Don't need to make too big a deal out of that. I'm with you. You're, rep, you're rep, representing me. It's bad for them if they reject you. Verse 7, And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Again, I read that and think, okay, I, I believe that because that's what it says. Why did he need to say that? I'm not exactly sure. One historical point that, that seemed to help me is to, to understand that the, the cynic philosophers, the cynic philosophers of the first century, uh, they, they, they made their living, so to speak. They had their needs met. Um, Well-known fact, by begging. And Jesus may be drawing a contrast here. You don't need to be like the cynic philosophers. You represent the king. <laughs> this is about the kingdom. You're proclaiming the good news about the kingdom. How, how crazy would it be for you to act like those guys? How crazy would it be for you representing royalty to be begging for your needs to be met? You go and you proclaim this good news and you offer that blessing and your needs will be taken care of. How about this? If they know you're from the king, they're going to meet your needs. If they see you for who you really are, the last place in the world you'll be is on the street. And so be different than those cynic philosophers. Verse 8, whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Accept the provisions. Now before we move on to another thing that happens when the kingdom comes near. Just maybe, maybe a point of application or maybe two. You know more than this chronologically. And I know more than this chronologically. Notice that there are 70 or 72 here. They're unique. They're not us. It's a favorite missionary passage, but it's something that happened. But we know more that said, John the Baptist, the 12, the 70 plus, looking forward to, anticipating, resembling, what we know is the Great Commission. And so I would expect, legitimately so, I think, to find some similarities. Because it will eventually go to, go and make disciples, Matthew 28, of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And if that's the case, that would include the Great Commission. And so if that's the case, then you have everyone being an emissary. You have everyone being an ambassador because they're to be taught everything that they were taught. And so all of that to say, I think we need to be careful with what we, we apply directly to us. This is about something that happened historically. We're not there. But that doesn't mean we can't have any application because 
the trajectory, to use that big word, I just feel smart using the word trajectory, right? Where it's aiming, where it's headed. John the Baptist, the 12, it's growing. Now you've got the 70 or 72 in anticipation of the multitudes who will go to all nations. So I would learn something from this passage. He sends them out like, like sheep amongst wolves. It's going to be dangerous. There's a point of application I find to be helpful because sometimes I think everybody should be accepting if my message is right. And if I'm clear, everyone will embrace it. And if, if not everybody's embracing it and it's a dangerous kind of situation, then I have the message wrong. No. Jesus himself, when he's sending out his disciples and now the 70-some saying it's going to be dangerous. Not everybody's going to accept this. I think that's a point of application worth owning and realizing. Helps you to bolster your confidence. Whether they accept or not, then it was true. I think in principle that would be true for us as well. And it would also be true in principle if there's a growing number. Pray for, pray for those who will go out. Well, if it was that, that was the case then... And so you needed one, twelve, seventy-two, and then all of a sudden we have the Great Commission that that has a limitless scope. All the more now, point of application. I'm going to pray, pray that there would be people who would go because the harvest is great. If it's a anticipation of that, I think it is. Number two, the king came, when the king came near, its benefits were experienced. When the king. When the kingdom came near, its benefits were experienced or tasted or there was a foretaste of its benefits, if you will. There's a sampling. There's a preview is the idea. Verse 9 says, quoting Jesus, heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. Healing, kingdom of God is near. What's the association? The association, as we've talked about before on other Sundays, where you have healing, you have kingdom, because in this coming anticipated everlasting kingdom, everything will be right and everything will be restored, and so you won't have people who are sick, and you won't have people who are dying, and you won't have people who are dead. And so when the kingdom comes near, because the king is on earth, We're getting a sampling, we're getting a foretaste, we're getting a preview of what will happen and last forever. That's why kingdom message is associated with a healing message. And we see it here. We see it here. He's going to liberate from all difficulty. Back in Luke chapter 4, we won't take the time time to go there. Jesus quotes Isaiah 61 and he says, "This this is me. It's going to include restoration, include healing when that kingdom comes. And here it says the kingdom came near. So the healing is happening to show that it wasn't just some religious philosopher or teacher or making empty promises. No, he actually acts and does things and has his emissaries do things that are kingdom-like. Now, not to go back and redo everything and you know, insert sermon here and reteach everything. But we have no reason to conclude that these people lived forever who were healed. If they lived forever, they would be here among us. We'd interview them. 
What's it like to be 2,025 years old? What's it like to have had perfect health because Jesus emissaries healed you or Jesus healed you? We have to conclude that the healing didn't last for every sickness they ever had or they'd still be alive. It's because the kingdom didn't come in its ultimate lasting form. The kingdom came near because the king is here giving a preview of what will last forever. And so we get a taste so that we can have confidence. He's really the one. He's not just another religious teacher. He really can do these things so we can trust him as we anticipate that coming kingdom that will last forever, as Daniel says, as Isaiah says, as Luke 1 says. And by the way, he's got to do more things. I'm already starting to turn so I can point to the cross. He has to do more things for the healing to last. Isaiah 53 ties ultimate healing, restoration, or requires, I should say, requires atoning sacrifice. He hasn't gone to the cross yet. He's got to do that. He gives this preview showing that he really has the power. He really is the one. But there's more work to be done. Not only is there the cross to be done, But there's something else that needs to be done if you're going to live forever and have perfect restoration and a perfect everlasting kingdom. Uh, Anybody? It's called resurrection, right? We've got to have Him raised from the dead bodily if we who are in Christ, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, are going to be raised. But He's giving us a great, legitimate, awesome, real, historic foretaste. Preview. Of things to come. Of things to come. That's what we're seeing here. How did it help them? It helped them temporarily to to, to feel better, obviously. But it helped them also to know, even lastingly more importantly, that Jesus really is the long-expected good one who will bring about that ultimate good experience in good place. And it helps us that way too. It helps us that way too. It's so good, and here's what I was getting at earlier in part, to talk about what happened. Because that helps us understand what's happening. It helps us understand what will one day happen. So glad Jesus really did these things. In the here and now. Through His own hands and through His apostles' hands. Because it bolsters our commitment to He's really the one. He's not just like some other religious teacher with empty promises. And so we move on to number three. A third thing that happened when the kingdom came near, its reality was independent. Its reality was independent. What I mean is, its reality was independent of whether or not people embraced it. It's real whether people accepted his emissaries or not. And he makes this point, and it's a super important point. Look at verse 10. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets, the public square, so to speak, and say, even the dust of your own, uh, the dust of your town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Yikes. There's a marked separation between God's representative and you. We wash our hands of this, so to speak, but here it's, we shake the dust off of our feet as a testimony against you. It's awful. 
Then verse 11 says, as we go on, Nevertheless, know this, Jesus says, that the kingdom of God has come near. Nevertheless, know this. How about, even though there's rejection, the kingdom of God has come near. You see, the reality, the spiritual reality of the kingdom of God coming near is not dependent on whether or not people embrace it or not. It's real no matter what. It's real if everybody believes it. How about this? It's real if nobody believes it. I think that's a, that's a refreshing word from Jesus, even for the way we hear uh, people talk and the way we interact with people about, um, you know, I like the phrase, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. But we act as if truth is in the eye of the beholder. And things are true only when they're true to me. And, and it, as Americans who have a love affair with the only philosophy America ever produced, pragmatism, we think if it's true, it works. Let's take it a little further. If it's true, it works for me. And let's put it conversely, if it doesn't work for me, it's not true. And Jesus' statement here is a good corrective of that, to that. Accept it or reject it, know this, the kingdom of God has come near. Sobering words. Helpful words. You know, we say things like, well, I'm glad that works for you. It doesn't really work for me. As if to say, well, that's true for you, but it's not true for me. And Jesus, if, I, if we can give him the microphone in light of what he said here, I don't think we're pushing it too much to say, Jesus says, it's true if it's true. Whether it works for you or not, it's true. The kingdom of God has come near. Helps me to keep my sanity in the here and now, even the way people think and the, people, the way people talk. And it helps me with a Christian worldview to think about what's, what's a, a right way of thinking. It also helps us, by the way, here, as we're going to see, it, it, it doesn't excuse people. It's, it, the kingdom of God has come. I mean, you're, you're responsible. You're, you're culpable, to use a big word. Make no mistake about it, the kingdom has come near. Now let's keep going. Related to that. Uh, when the kingdom came near, number four, its rejection was most heinous. When the kingdom came near, its rejection was most heinous. Now, maybe I should offer a, a loving warning here. Um, if you're of the opinion that Jesus, um, first and foremost, is an, an open-minded guru who spent most of his free time playing with sheep and petting the nice little lammies, um, and that's your, your, your go-to view of Jesus, this would be a good time to read a poem, okay? Um, just get out your iPhone or your iPad or whatever you're doing and just find a, find a good poem or something. Uh, <laughs> I say that facetiously. Um, I say that facetiously. Because we actually, if that's your view of Jesus or it's anything like that, this is a really important time to listen. Um, verse 12. I tell you, this is Jesus. 
He's got the microphone. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. That's where you want to go. Say what? It'll be more bearable for Sodom on that day than for that town. That day, judgment day, no, no question about it. That's what he's talking about. Sodom, the most heinous, despicable, Gentile, pagan city. I mean, everybody in the Old Testament world knows if you want to talk about the bad place where bad people live and bad people go, it's Sodom. And Jesus winds up and says, all right. People who reject my emissaries, who proclaim the good news of my kingdom and are rejected when the kingdom comes near, it'll be better to be a Sodomite than to be that kind of person. And you go, whoa, that's not the Jesus I knew in Sunday school, right? If it's true, it doesn't mean he's being mean. He's being honest. He's being truthful. And then he says, woe to you, in verse 13, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. These are the places where the disciples go and proclaim the, 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 the kingdom. For if the mighty works done in you, these are these apostolic works, his works, had been done in Tyre and Sidon, two more despicably awful places to that world, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth and ashes? You know you're so guilty and you're so willing to acknowledge your own guilt that you're going to do public displays of repentance. I mean, it's one thing to say, I was wrong. But publicly display, I am totally and utterly wrong and I'm going to sit here so my whole community sees that I'm wrong. And Jesus says, if these kinds of things would have been done historically in those godless places, they would have publicly repented to their own shame. It's going to be worse for you. Now we can say, this is the mean Jesus. The Jesus we don't like. Or we can say, this is the honest Jesus who loves sinners like you and me enough to say, let me be honest. He's being honest. And then you can say, he is kind and gracious, patient. Let the true Jesus speak, and if need be, let him distort your view of the Jesus that you have. That'd be good. I haven't told the story for a while, so I'll tell it uh, again. I remember teaching a Fundamentals of the Faith class, I think is what I was teaching. Um, some UCLA students in Southern California, that was um, what we did on Sundays. And uh, the one girl who had been invited by a friend who'd come several weeks was in, in, in tears, and she was visibly upset. And what are we going to do? And I look at Molly, and she looks at me, and so she wants to talk, and so I stepped outside, out on the balcony, this open-air campus, and stood outside as the people were leaving and talking, and I just said, you know, what's wrong? And she said, I've been coming here for three weeks or whatever, and, and I'm learning the Bible, because it was one of those obvious things, like fundamentals of the faith, if you've ever gone through those workbooks, it's like kind of a no-brainer, like fill in the blank, this is what the Bible says, and you fill in the blank, it's super simple and easy. And she said, I keep coming here and learning and listening. And, and she said, it's distorting my view of God. And I, 
was singing the hallelujah chorus in my heart, you know. Yes! Because I'm mean-spirited? Probably. But (laughs) that wasn't why I was doing that. I was so happy. I was thrilled beyond measure because the reality is we could all use a good distorting of our view of God. Being brought into line with reality. And Jesus is exhorting them, challenging them, saying it's going to be worse for you if you don't get on board with reality. The reality of me being the king, my coming kingdom. If you don't get on board with reality, it's going to be worse for you than it will be for those people that you think are so bad. And they are so bad. And why would he say that? He would say that because these folks are sinning, as we might say in our language, they're sinning against the greater revelation. The ultimate revelation would be the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's at its climactic point, at its high point. And if they're sinning against that greater light, they're sinning against the greatest one. This is why theologians would say things like, there are degrees of punishment in hell. Because it'll be worse for some. Hell will be hotter for, uh, hell will be hotter for some. The more you hear, the more you're responsible for. We're all responsible to begin with. And that has some application. Even though we're talking about what happened. It's a frightening thing to hear the gospel again and again and again. It's a frightening thing, how about this, to go to church and reject and reject and reject. why the need is there to repent and to believe and to trust in the king who has an everlasting promised kingdom how about verse 14 but it will be more bearable in the judgment day for Tyre and Sidon than for you and you Capernaum how about that that's the, the Galilean city where so much of Jesus ministry takes place will be exalted to heaven question mark you shall be brought down to hell to Hades Wow, sobering, very sobering. Number five, a fifth thing that happened when the kingdom came near, its messengers enjoyed uh, unity with the king. Its messengers enjoyed unity with the king. We'll do this one super fast. If you want to use a bigger word for unity, solidarity. They're, they're together, they're inseparable. Verse 16, the one who, who hears you, hears me. Man, talk about building confidence when they're getting ready to go out amongst wolves. The one who hears you, hears me. And the one who rejects you rejects me. And the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. Even the Father is what he's saying. I really like that verse. I would, they would have liked it. Right? I like that verse because there's a pattern of verses like that in the Bible when it comes to doing hard things. Uh, in Matthew 28, the Great Commission... Jesus says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. As you're ready to go step over boundaries where you shouldn't socially, because you're going to make disciples of all nations, all people groups, regardless of what their religion is, regardless of what their, their, their heritage is, you're going to go and make disciples for Jesus amongst all nations. Just know I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Spirit of Christ, I take is with us. How about in Matthew 18? We, we call it the church discipline chapter. Jesus says, what's bound on earth has been bound in heaven. 
Just know you're not making this decision alone. Provided you've done this the biblical way and you follow Scripture, heaven is saying amen to what you've done. Well, that encourages us when we have to do hard things and make hard decisions. And we can relate to these disciples. You do the hard thing and you say, I don't know if I want to do this. Well, if it's what Jesus commands that we do, we say, okay, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. When heaven came near, its messengers enjoyed solidarity with the king. And we see something of that even for us beyond this text. Number six, when the kingdom came near, its arrival signals satanic defeat. Its arrival signals satanic defeat. I love this preview. Hope you love it too. Verse 17, the 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. If this were me, I'd be going, <laughs> you know, not, not in a sinister sense, but victorious, joyous. Even the demons are subject to us. Lord, you should see the kind of things we can do. And he would know all about the kind of things they could do because he gave them power to do it. But you can just see their excitement, their enthusiasm. We're, we're, we're doing what other people can't do. We're doing what we couldn't do. We're doing the undoable. This is if, as if it's something supernatural or something. <laughs> yeah, the kingdom has come near. This is a preview of things to come. This is how it will be in the future. In a perfect, lasting sense. Because there will be no conflict, demonic or otherwise. Then verse 18 says, And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Best I can understand that, up for debate, best I can understand it in the flow of things. He's commenting on what they've said, and he's acknowledging the reality of what they've done, and by way of preview, when the kingdom comes, that, by the way, won't be a preview, it'll be actuality. Right? Satan is still alive and kicking, still alive and well, still called later on after this revelation, he's still called the ruler of this world. But with the kingdom coming near, it's symbolic of, it's a preview of Satan's dethronement, Satan's defeat. And Jesus is, is likening this preview to something that's already as good as done. Usually, interestingly enough, the scriptures tie Satan's ultimate defeat to the cross, which hasn't even happened yet. So more has to happen for this ultimately to happen. But because Jesus is who he is and because he's going to do what he's going to do, it's as good as done and Jesus can speak of it in those terms. Yeah. You know, you say, that's right, this is good. And it's so good because, again, for, for, for you and for me, we're living in a broken world where Satan is still called the ruler of this world. And so we, we, we want the kingdom to not, not just come near. We want the kingdom to come. Because it will be the reality and the death blow of Satan. It's good. Now, I don't want to make too big a deal out of this because um, I have a sinful heart. And, and so do you. You're part of the human race. Um, and you don't need Satan um, to bring out your, your sinfulness. Um, we can't say the devil made me do it. Okay? Uh, as was popular so many years ago, and one generation ago. 
I do just fine and bad without Satan. But what we do see when we're looking at the movement from the very good place to the mess that we're in and we've been living in, certainly Satan is involved. And certainly Satan is involved with the initial temptation and with the fall as the deceiver. And so I would be very comfortable in acknowledging with those caveats, those qualifiers, that where you have the defeat of Satan and he is ultimately conquered, that is related ultimately to the cross, which does free us from our enslavement to sin with or without Satan. Point being, when and where this happens, you've got the kingdom and we are restored and there's no more suffering, no more pain, no more conflict. It's the kingdom. Longing for this to happen. We're even bolstered in our knowing it's going to happen because of what Jesus says by way of preview in verse 18. Let's move to number seven. Number seven, the kingdom came near. When the kingdom came near, its benefits were not the ultimate. Its benefits were not the ultimate. Verse 19, Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. And again, you're going, awesome, awesome, dangerous things, which are dangerous because it's a broken, fallen, sin-cursed world, because we're kingdom previewers, aren't going to be dangerous. He's not calling for a snake handling ministry in the church. I mean, that's not the scorpion ministry. He's not calling for that. The kingdom comes near. And so those of you who are called my, my apostolos, my official emissaries being sent out, in this kingdom preview time, it's going to be kingdom-like and there's no more conflict, not even with nature. And they're going, awesome! Watch this, kids! <laughs> I'm not saying it was that crass and I'm not going to suggest that that's how it was. But knowing full well that they could think that this, this benefit is the ultimate, that the stuff, that the fruit is the ultimate, Jesus says what he says in verse 20. Nevertheless, I mean, that, that's all true. It's absolutely true. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Let's keep perspective here, boys and girls. The ultimate needs to be the ultimate. Your name. He uses census terminology. You're a citizen. You belong. You belong to heaven. You belong to the kingdom of heaven. You belong to God. God is the one who put your name in the census. You want ultimate? The ultimate is not the fruit. And that's called perversion. The ultimate isn't in the gift. The ultimate is in God as the one who's given the gift. The ultimate is in the coming king, if you will. And we've got to have that straight. Some of you read that book that was out a number of years ago called um, God is the Gospel. Well, very similar to this reality. This is a complementary text to that reality. The ultimate is not the benefits. The ultimate is God. The ultimate is belonging to Him. He's claiming you as His own. Enjoy the benefits, but you just got to know that it's ultimately about the giver of these things. You're related to Him? Because now think with me about how this fleshes itself out logically. 
These guys are on top of the world. What would normally be dangerous isn't dangerous because we have a preview of a restored world. Kingdom, preview. It's not going to last. It doesn't last. We know it doesn't last. They die. They get persecuted. What's going to carry them to the end? This is giving them joy. Look what I can do. But what's going to actually be the lasting significant joy? It's going to be, look who I belong to. Look where my citizenship is fixed. And Jesus says, that's got to be what occupies you most. Or you're going to have a wrong perspective. And by way of application, we can see application in that for us. Even if we don't have these previewed kingdom powers. We have many blessings. It's different, yes. But by way of principle, we have so many blessings and so many great things that happen. But what's going to sustain your joy? Not the blessings. Because at least for a time, you're going to be separated from those blessings. At least the physical blessings. What's going to sustain you? What's going to get you through? Jesus has to call our, direct, our attention, their attention. Let's follow their example. Attention back to what's ultimate. Rejoice in the fact that your name is inscribed. It's in heaven. It's with God. It's a great, helpful perspective check. Number eight, when the kingdom came near, its acceptance was according to sovereign grace. Its acceptance was according to sovereign grace. Who embraces it? Who doesn't embrace it? Who do we think should embrace it? Who should get the kingdom? The rich and the famous, the sophisticated and the committed. Well, let's see if that's how it works. Verse 21. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven, that's the sovereignty part, and earth, sovereignty part, that you have hidden these things from the wise. That's a surprise and understanding, and reveal them to little children. Again, unless you're royalty, think socially insignificant in that culture. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. God is sovereign. He can do whatever He wants. Jesus likes that. You want to talk about controversy? One of the most controversy realities I know amongst professing Christians is the reality of sovereign grace, is the reality of the sovereignty of God that He can do whatever He wants to do. And people get all bent out of shape and freak out that God is free to do whatever He wants to do. And let's be Christ-like. Christ says, I rejoice in sovereign grace. Uh, you say, uh, I don't rejoice in sovereign grace. Well, be Christ-like. How about this? He rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. How about that? Evidence that the Holy Spirit is working is where people who are Christ-like are rejoicing in sovereign grace. I want to get on board with that. I want to be Christ-like. God, I'm good with you. No, I'm rejoicing at the reality that you've chosen to reveal this to people who don't deserve it and people who think they deserve it to hide it from them. Now, it doesn't mean we understand all the intricacies of that, but Jesus is so on board. He says, I rejoice that you do what you plan to do. Wow. Jesus likes sovereign grace. Verse 22 is similar but complementary regarding Jesus. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son. And by the way, if you stop right there, that would be utterly and completely depressing. 
It's a, it's a closed relationship, and it's not open to us, and, and we're in trouble. But thank God for the small words that come in strategic places. How about that small word, and? And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Jesus likes sovereign grace so much, He acts according to His own sovereign grace. And He has let us in on the relationship so that we can know Him and that we can know God, and it's according to His sovereign grace. Not according to what we deserve, not according to what we've earned. Number nine, and finally, when the kingdom came near, its, its experience marked the climax of redemptive history. Its experience marked the climax of redemptive history, at least the initiation of that climax. How about verse 23? Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, blessed, admirable, enviable, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desire to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. You, you, you guys are in the, in, in the seat of being most envied in all of history. Sure, people might have prophesied, people might have talked about it, even unbelieving kings who had revelatory dreams said, tell me what this means. I need to know what this means. And Jesus says, you guys know what it means like nobody else knew what it means. Why? Because Jesus the King is right there looking at them. He's right before them. You of all people are most blessed. This is the biggest high point in all of redemptive history up until this point in time. Yes, more is going to happen, but this is the beginning. This is the initiating of all of those final things that are going to happen. And then think about this, about how blessed you are. And you say, I don't think I'm as blessed as they are because I haven't seen Jesus physically. Okay, fair enough. But let me respond with this. At this point in time, they don't see Jesus going to the cross. Of all people, they're most blessed. But you know what? They're about ready to be more blessed. Because things are going to come together even more on how this king is going to be. He's the suffering servant. And he's going to go to the cross. He's going to give himself over to be delivered over. And then he's going to be crucified to atone for sins, which is the ultimate in bringing that kingdom restoration, according to Isaiah 53. And then you have him rising from the dead blessed, seeing that. You know more than these guys knew at this point in time. You're more blessed than they are. And then you have empty tomb and then you have ascension and then you have promise of his, promise of his return to set up and rule and reign in perfect righteousness. And you go, yes! And let's end with this. Let's forever remember what Jesus teaches his disciples we're not to that section yet in Luke we're going to get there let's forever remember what he teaches his disciples when he teaches them how to pray more than likely if you're like me you've said it so many times you don't even know what it means let's remember what he says when he says your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven it's what you want you want good relationship, you want good health, you want a good life, you want a good world, you want all your needs met, you want to be safe, you want to be secure, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not the kingdom coming close, but the kingdom coming. Because that's when we will be returned to the very good place. 
Oh, by the way, it'll be better than Eden. Because Eden had a built-in breaking mechanism. And it broke. New heavens, new earth, the eternal kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ will never break. It'll last forever. And we should be saying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Because we're praying for the very good place that will last forever. May it be so. Father, thank you so much for the great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And and thank you that he is a, a mighty Savior who cares for rebellious sinners like us. Thank you that he doesn't hold our sins against us. Instead, he took those sins uh, upon himself. And thank you that he absorbed that righteous wrath, the wrath that you poured out upon him from heaven, and that he was raised from the dead, and that he has ascended, and even right now is at your right hand claiming us as his own. And thank you that he will return. And one day there will be no more tears, and there will be no more suffering, there will be no more pain, No more bad news, only good news in Christ Jesus. May that hope sustain us and motivate us. In Jesus' name, amen.